You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 224, St. Vincent and Granada. Now, we must remember that after France entered the war, the British had to contend with a much larger war over colonies all over the world. Of particular interest to both France and Britain were valuable island colonies in the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean. We last checked in on the West Indies in episode 203. In late 1778, the French, under Admiral Comte d'Estaing, captured the island of Dominica, and the British, under Admiral Samuel Barrington, captured St. Lucia. The arrival of a larger fleet under British Admiral John Byron prevented the French from recapturing St. Lucia. When Admiral Byron's fleet arrived in January 1779, the British fleet in the region was a bit larger than that of France's under d'Estaing. A couple of weeks later, the French received reinforcements in the form of four more ships of the line, commanded by the French Admiral, the Comte de Grasse. The 56-year-old French Admiral, François-Joseph-Paul de Grasse, had recently received promotion to Rear Admiral. He came from an old French aristocratic family and had distant blood ties to the royal families of Europe. His father was a Marquis who had served as a captain in France's Royal Navy. As a younger son, François was not in line to inherit the family title. So, at age 11, he joined the Order of St. John, a Catholic military order which can trace its roots back to the Crusades. Young de Grasse served aboard galley ships battling the Turks and the Moors. By age 17, he received a lieutenant's commission in the French Navy. During the Seven Years' War, de Grasse served in India. Following the war, de Grasse worked to build a larger French Navy. By the time the American Revolution began, de Grasse captained Le Intrepid, a 74-gun ship of the line. Captain de Grasse had just recently fought at the Battle of Ushant, which I discussed in more detail back in episode 194. Shortly after his promotion to Rear Admiral in 1779, de Grasse led a small fleet to the West Indies to support Admiral d'Estaing. This was the beginning of his growing role in the Americas. Around the same time that de Grasse's French fleet arrived, the British also sent four more ships of the line under Commodore Joshua Raleigh. Joshua Raleigh was the son of Admiral of the Fleet Sir William Raleigh, who died about a decade earlier after a long and prominent career. The younger Raleigh had been born in Dublin, Ireland. By age 10, he was serving aboard his father's ship in the Mediterranean during the War of Austrian Succession. By age 13, he had become a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, and before he turned 20, he captained his own ship, the Rye, serving in the Irish Sea. Captain Raleigh transferred to successively larger ships in the years leading up to the Seven Years' War. By 1757, he commanded the new 64-gun Montecule and engaged in conspicuous service against the French in the Mediterranean. During the 1758 assault on Cherbourg, he was wounded and captured. He was exchanged in time to command a ship at the Battle of Quiberon Bay in 1758. He was then transferred to spend the later years of the war in the West Indies, 
protecting British merchant ships. After the Seven Years' War, Raleigh had little to do. He would not command another ship until October 1776, when he received command of the 74-gun Monarch. He remained close to England, but did manage to capture an American privateer. After fighting with distinction at the Battle of Ushant, Raleigh transferred from the damaged Monarch to a new 74-gun ship of the line, the Suffolk. In late 1778, Commodore Raleigh received orders to sail a seven-ship fleet to the Leeward Islands in support of Admiral Byron. Shortly after his arrival, in February 1779, he received his promotion to Rear Admiral. For several months, the two fleets watched each other. Neither side thought they had enough of an advantage to go on the offensive. The British had attempted to capture the French portion of St. Martin in January, but a French counterattack kept the island in French hands. The French operated primarily out of Martinique, while the British fleet remained close by at St. Lucia. By spring, however, the balance of power began to change. In late April, three more ships of the line arrived under Rear Admiral Louis-Philippe de Rigard, the Marquis de Vaudreuil. Admiral de Vaudreuil was also from a prominent French family. His grandfather had served as governor of French Canada, and his father was an admiral. De Vaudreuil also had a long and storied career in the French Navy, and like the other two new arrivals, had fought at the Battle of Ushant before being deployed to the West Indies. His arrival improved the French position, but still not enough for them to go on the offensive. By early June, neither side had made much movement. The British had a fleet of merchant ships that were assembling at St. Christopher, known today as St. Kitts, to form a convoy back to Britain. Admiral Byron seems to have decided the safety of the convoy was more important than watching the French fleet, and he sent the British fleet to St. Christopher. With the British fleet now 200 miles to the north, the French looked for opportunities to take advantage of their absence. St. Lucia still had too many regulars to make it an easy target. Instead, the French looked a little farther south to the island of St. Vincent, about 100 miles south of Martinique. St. Vincent was a relatively tiny island, only about 130 square miles. In terms of land size, that's about the equivalent size of modern-day Philadelphia. The island population was almost nothing, only a few dozen plantations. France had ceded St. Vincent to Britain as part of the Treaty of Paris, ending the Seven Years' War. Up until then, the island was mostly occupied by African Caribs. These were descendants of island slaves who had formed their own independent communities on the island. In 1779, the small island was divided in many ways. The southeastern side of the island was controlled by the British. The Caribs, led by Joseph Chatoyor, controlled the northwestern side of the island. In 1769, a British survey attempted to enter the Carib side of the island, only to be attacked. The British then launched what became known as the First Carib War in an attempt to subdue the locals, but could not commit the resources to conquer the defenders of the mountainous region of the island. The result of a 1773 settlement was to draw a line on the island designating the British side and the Carib side. As you might guess from the fact that it is called the First Carib War, the solution was only temporary. The British side was controlled by Governor Valentine Morris, 
the son of a wealthy sugar plantation owner on a nearby island. Morris had moved back to England, purchased a country home, and ran for Parliament. After losing the election, he returned to the West Indies, where he was forced to sell his properties in Antigua, but managed to receive an appointment as governor of St. Vincent. In his reports to London, Morris reported that the local landowners were unwilling to commit to the island's defense. It appears that many of them had immigrated from North America and were sympathetic to the American cause. To secure the island, Britain had sent the Royal American Regiment, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel George Etherington. Etherington had been born in Delaware. He enlisted as a common soldier before receiving a commission as an officer. The regiment included British subjects from all over the empire. Some were from North America, some were from England, a few were even from Hanover. The regiment had first assembled during the French and Indian War for service in America. The detachment under Etherington had come to St. Vincent before the Revolution as part of the effort to subdue the Carib population on the island. Etherington and Morris did not seem to get along. Governor Morris complained that Etherington was doing little to shore up the island defenses. Instead of training, the colonel allegedly used his soldiers to help clear his own plantation, which Etherington had received for his service during the Seven Years' War. As a result, the defenses on the island were in poor condition. Half the army was not fit for duty, and the Caribs were upset because the plantation that Etherington was clearing fell on their side of the island, and therefore was considered an illegal trespass. The French governor of Martinique made contact with Chateaulieu in an attempt to get the Caribs to support a French invasion of the island. The French governor even supplied the Caribs with French muskets. With the British fleet having sailed north to St. Christopher, French Admiral d'Estaing deployed a small force to take St. Vincent. Lieutenant de Vassieux, Charles-Marie de Troulon du Remain, who played a key role in capturing St. Martin a couple of months earlier, took command of a force of about 500 mostly French regulars, but including about 200 French militia from Martinique. The force boarded a frigate, two corvettes, and two privateer ships. One of the ships blew ashore on St. Vincent and sank with the loss of 82 men. The rest of the fleet sailed into Kensington Harbor with no flags flying. The locals sent a man out on a boat to ascertain who they were. They took the man prisoner and began deploying soldiers to the shore. At the same time, the French alerted the Caribs of the attack. Chateaulieu assembled about 800 armed men to lead an attack on the British settlement. The British were taken completely by surprise. Governor Morris attempted to rally a defense, hoping to hold out in the hills until the British fleet returned. Colonel Etherington, however, wanted to surrender. The prospect of fighting an army of armed Caribs had massacre written all over it. He wanted to surrender to the French before the Caribs arrived in Kingston. For a moment, the French thought they were in trouble when they spotted three British flagged ships entering the harbor. But it turned out these were supply ships. The French captured two of them before the third escaped. The French commander, Du Remain, demanded unconditional surrender. In the end, the British surrendered the island with almost no fighting at all. A few weeks later, the French position in the region grew even stronger. Rear Admiral Lamont Piquet 
arrived at Martinique with five more French ships of the line, three frigates, and 60 troop transports. Admiral Lamotte Piquet also came from a good French family, had joined the Navy as a young teenager, fought numerous battles, and had served on dozens of French naval vessels. During the War of Austrian Succession, he had nearly lost his head to a British cannonball. Instead, the ball just grazed his cheek, giving him a permanent facial scar. During the Seven Years' War, he had fought in multiple theaters, including Europe and Canada. By 1777, Lamont Piquet commanded the 74-gun Robust. In February of 1778, a week after the French signed the Treaty of Amity with the American commissioners in Paris, Lamont Piquet fired a salute to the American ship Ranger, commanded by Captain John Paul Jones. This was thought to be the first foreign naval recognition of an American flag. Shortly afterward, Lamont Piquet was transferred to a larger 80-gun Saint Esprit and fought in the Battle of Ushant along with everybody else in the French Navy. Shortly thereafter, he too was sent at the head of a fleet to the West Indies to support Admiral d'Estaing. With the arrival of the fleet under Admiral Lamont Piquet in late June 1779, Admiral d'Estaing finally thought he had enough of an advantage to go on a larger offensive. In late June, the French fleet set sail for Barbados. The large British colony there had valuable sugar plantations worked by thousands of slaves. As the French fleet made its way to Barbados, poor winds kept the ships from their intended target. A frustrated Distang eventually gave up and just sailed to Granada instead. With the British fleet still in St. Christopher, the French reached Granada on July 2, 1779. It took well over a day to land the troops on the beaches so that they could begin storming the defenses around the capital of St. George, also sometimes called Georgetown at the time. The attack began late in the day on July 3rd. Granada's governor, Lord George McCartney, came from an old Scottish family that had lived in Northern Ireland for several generations. He had been a career diplomat, but had no military background. The British had established defenses on the high ground near town, known as Hospital Hill. About 800 British regulars and militia occupied Hospital Hill supported by artillery and placing defenses on the approach to the hill in order to slow any enemy advance. Governor d'Estaing hoped to take the island quickly. He wanted his army on the island so that when Byron's fleet arrived, his ships would not be packed with soldiers. The French fleet began firing on St. George, supported by a small number of troops. That attack on St. George was only meant to be a distraction. During the night of July 3rd, French soldiers advanced on Hospital Hill in the dark. Admiral d'Estaing personally led the assault. The French were on top of the defenders before they knew what was happening. After a brief struggle of hand-to-hand combat, the British defenders surrendered. The following morning, July 4th, French soldiers commanding Hospital Hill fired on Fort George, just below them, where Governor McCartney was in command. Realizing the hopelessness of his position, the governor sent a messenger under truce to ask for terms. Once again, the French demanded unconditional surrender. Given their position, the governor felt he had no choice but to accede. The French captured over 100 cannons, 30 merchant ships, and a vast array of supplies held on the island. 
the governor and other leading men of the island were not given parole, but instead were shipped back to France as prisoners of war. Meanwhile, up in St. Christopher, Admiral Byron had seen off that British convoy. On July 1st, he had returned to the island, where he received the news that the French had taken St. Vincent. He immediately turned his fleet south, taking 21 ships of the line and a fleet of transport ships south, in search of the French fleet. He learned from a cruiser that the French had landed at Granada, so he took his fleet there. Granada was nearly 400 miles south of St. Christopher, so the voyage took several days. It was during this time that D'Estaing secured Granada. On the evening of July 5th, D'Estaing received word that Byron's fleet was approaching. He prepared his fleet to do battle. On the morning of July 6th, the two fleets came into sight of each other. Byron had not received news of Admiral Lepont Piquet's arrival, meaning that the French fleet contained 25 ships of the line along with several more frigates, with significantly more total firepower than the British had available. Finding the French fleet just outside St. George's Bay, Byron ordered the British to give chase directly. As the British fleet got closer, they realized just how much larger the French fleet was. Byron scrambled to get his ships into a more ordered line of battle. But by the time he gave that order, the fleets were so close that the fleets engaged while the British line was still in disorder. The ships spent the better part of the day firing broadsides into one another. Both fleets were badly damaged by the day-long engagement. Two of the British ships, the Fame and the Lion, were badly damaged and almost sank. The Fame had to sail away to Jamaica to avoid being captured. Another British ship, the Monmouth, had to sail for Antigua for repairs as well. In total, the British reported just over a thousand men killed or wounded. The French suffered similar casualties, reporting just under a thousand. That evening, the British fleet slipped away and returned to St. Christopher for repairs. It would take more than a week for the fleet to return, finally limping into port on July 15th. The French returned to St. George's Bay that night and mostly remained in Granada to perform their own repairs. Admiral d'Estaing was more concerned with protecting his forces on Granada than pursuing the British fleet. Admiral Barrington had been wounded in the battle and sailed back home with dispatches for London. Shortly thereafter, Admiral Byron, who had been suffering from what has been described as a nervous disorder, remained in St. Christopher for a few weeks, then also sailed for England, leaving Admiral Hyde Parker in command of the fleet. In London, Byron would take criticism for what was seen as a rather sloppy attack on the French fleet. Although he would be offered new commands, he refused to accept them. Granada would be the end of his naval career. For the French, the summer was a great victory. St. Vincent and Granada would remain under French control for the remainder of the war. In the weeks after the battle, Admiral d'Estaing took his fleet up to St. Christopher to sail his line in front of the British. He wanted to show the enemy that his ships were prepared and ready once again for battle, but he did not seek to engage them then and there. Shortly after that, the French fleet sailed back north to assist with the Siege of Savannah, but that will have to be the topic of a future episode. Next week, we're going to head north again 
where General Henry Clinton conducts a raid on Stony Point, New York, and the Americans, under General Anthony Wayne, take it back again. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club, Train Ants, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to my Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. Last month, Knox Press released a book, Accomplishing the Impossible, Leadership that Launched Revolutionary Change. The book looks at leadership traits from the founders during the Revolutionary War and how those traits can be applied today. For more details, go to knoxpress.com. Now, this week we looked at events in the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean. When the war slowed down in North America after 1778, it's important to remember that it did so because the war for the French and British picked up in other parts of the world. The West Indies became a much more important field of battle because the value of the Sugar Islands in that area. A fighting in this region usually got going in the early winter after the hurricane season ended and lasted until early summer when once again the fleets tried to leave the area as the new hurricane season began. In a period where there was no weather radar, you really didn't want to be anywhere near a hurricane with your fleet of wooden sailing ships. I did introduce a number of new people in this week's episode that probably deserve a little bit more discussion. One person who I introduced today was the Comte de Grasse. Those of you who have read ahead know that de Grasse will play a key role in some future Revolutionary War campaigns, including Yorktown. Those, of course, will be the topic of future episodes. But I also wanted to note that de Grasse spent some time in India, both before and after his service in America. There, he fathered a boy with an Indian woman, who he formally adopted and brought back to France for education. That boy, George de Grasse, immigrated to the United States years after his father's death. George settled in New York City around 1800 and worked for, among other people, Aaron Burr. In New York, he married an African-American woman, and the two lived rather elite lives, particularly for people of color during that era. One of their children, John Van Salee de Grasse, 
attended medical school, and became a prominent physician in Boston. Some of you who are familiar with the history of the abolition movement may know John because he did become a prominent abolitionist and during the Civil War served as the regimental surgeon for the 54th Colored Regiment. That's the famed unit that was portrayed in the movie Glory. I also mentioned the Caribs, who were a group of people of African descent who were living free of any European authority and any enslavement on the island of St. Vincent. The French gave the island of St. Vincent back to the British when the war ended in the Treaty of Paris, so the Caribs and British went back to that uneasy truce where they kind of segregated the island, the Caribs living on one half and British colonists living on the other. Then later in the 1790s, the French once again tried to back the Caribs into overthrowing the British when the French and British were at war following the French Revolution. Now, this was what became known as the Second Carib War. This time, the British implemented a more final solution and deported all of the Caribs to a small island off the coast of present-day Honduras. Their descendants are known as the Garifuna people. With the Caribs removed, St. Vincent remained solely a part of the British Empire, and it and Granada remained part of the British Empire until 1979, when both islands finally gained their independence. I had mentioned in the main story that Governor Morris and Colonel Etherington had both had a dispute, a conflict that contributed to the easy French victory there with basically no defense at all. Morris later brought charges against Colonel Etherington for neglect of duty, but a court-martial would acquit Etherington on all charges. He would remain a British officer and would return to St. Vincent after the war and resume his life as a plantation owner. He died of natural causes before the Second Carib War, so he didn't have to worry about any of that violence. Governor Morris would end up in debtor's prison. In part, he argued, because of the personal funds that he spent on the defense of St. Vincent. But it was also because he had a pretty serious gambling problem. So the end of his life was particularly sad. His wife attempted to commit suicide and was confined to an insane asylum, what they called in the day a madhouse. He had to sell all of his estates in the West Indies and in Britain to try to cover his debts, and he died impoverished in London in 1789. The other royal governor that I mentioned this week, McCartney, who ruled over Granada, and I know some of you are probably going to call and complain that I should be calling it Grenada, not Granada, but as far as I can tell, either pronunciation is acceptable. Anyway, McCartney, who had been taken as a prisoner of war by the French, would be exchanged and would go on to become governor of Madras in modern-day India near the end of the Revolutionary War. Later, he would serve as the first British ambassador to China, arriving aboard the Lion, which was the same ship that was almost destroyed during the Battle of Granada. Near the end of his life, he would serve as governor of the newly acquired Cape Colony in what is today South Africa. McCartney's service to the crown earned him the title of an earl in Ireland and a baron in England. He had married the daughter of the Earl of Bute, who you may recall had been George III's tutor and had also served as prime minister before the Revolutionary War. I've listed a number of books that go into more detail on most of these people and topics, so if any of them interest you, please go look at the list of books at the bottom of my blog for this episode. 
I think I lightly touched on some particularly interesting topics that don't get a lot of coverage in other places, so lots of good books to look at. I do, however, try to limit my book recommendations to one per week, and this one is called An Empire Divided, The American Revolution and the British Caribbean by Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. This book focuses on the war in the West Indies, a topic that is generally avoided by most Revolutionary War books because it mostly involves fighting between France and Britain and later Spain and doesn't really involve the Continental Army. As I said, though, the fighting there between those European powers was crucial to the final American victory. The author, O'Shaughnessy, has written a number of other books, including one that I've made as a previous book recommendation here on the podcast. He is a history professor at the University of Virginia and also serves on the board of the Monticello Foundation. This is one of his earlier books, first published in 2000. You can find an e-copy of the book on archive.org, or you can buy it wherever fine books are sold. If you want to read more, get a copy of O'Shaughnessy's An Empire Divided. For my online recommendation, I have picked an older book that focuses on the naval battles of the era. It's called Major Operations of the Royal Navy, 1762-1783, by Alfred Thayer Mann. It takes a much closer look at the naval battles that I described in this week's episode. The author, Mann, was a 19th century naval officer and a historian who wrote another book called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, which is largely credited with the rise of the modern U.S. Navy. You can find Major Operations of the Royal Navy on archive.org or just use the direct links that I have put on my website and blog. My question this week asks, who was Martha Washington's first husband? Well, when Martha Dandridge Custis married George Washington in 1759, she was a 27-year-old widow who had already borne four children, two of which were still living. Two years earlier, her first husband, Daniel Park Custis, had died of an apparent heart attack. Custis was only 45 years old, but he was 20 years older than his wife. Daniel came from a wealthy and powerful Virginia family. His father, John Custis, served on the Governor's Council. Daniel, however, showed little interest in politics. His mother died when he was a young boy, and his father moved him to Williamsburg. Custis's father tended to be controlling and prevented him from marrying several women when he was a younger man. When he was 24, though, his father did give him a 275-acre estate in Virginia. Daniel eventually became a vestryman at the local Anglican church, St. Peter's. About 10 years after he acquired the estate, he met a young 16-year-old girl named Martha, who also went to the church. He immediately was attracted to her, though his father disapproved of their relationship, just as he had disapproved of most of Daniel's earlier efforts to get married. A year or so after the two met, his father died, and the two married about a year after that when Martha was 18 years old. Custis, as I said, avoided politics, lived quietly on his vast plantations, which were tens of thousands of acres and supported by hundreds of slaves that he had inherited from his father's family as his only living child. When Daniel Custis died in 1757, he didn't have a will. 
He had that extremely large estate, and by law, one-third of it went to his wife Martha, and two-thirds of it went to his two surviving children, Jack and Patsy Custis. When Martha married George Washington, her third ownership in Custis's properties became those of George Washington, and Washington also became the trustee and caretaker for the two-thirds of the properties that he would hold in trust until the two children came of age. If you have a question that you would like answered, please email me or reach out on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.